You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Maintain and every day deny self and continue to love by faith? Absolutely. But, I, but thank God, by the grace of God, I got more than just love by faith now. I got feelings. But it's faith that opened the door for the feelings. Faith. Are you hearing me? You hearing the Lord? Don't come to my office. Don't even, you don't even want to call me. If you say, well, I'm just, I, I don't love her anymore. And she doesn't love me anymore. Love deeply. Deeply. Love is a choice that you make. It's not something that's simply there or not, completely outside of your control. This is true in every relationship you have, and especially with your spouse if you're married. The passion of dating isn't going to last forever. That man or woman won't always be young. Their looks are going to change. Their personality and character are also going to change. So will yours. In today's message, Pastor Danny will remind us that deep, true love requires faith and commitment. You don't just fall into it. Now here's Pastor Danny with today's edition of The Living Word. First Samuel chapter 24, especially verse 5. And I'll tell you what it's, the context is. King David uh, running from King Saul. Or actually, David's not king. He's been anointed king, but he's, he's a fugitive, basically running from King Saul, who uh, is embittered against David. You, you probably know the story. One day, David and his men happened to uh, run into Saul, uh, not literally, but he's in a cave. Saul's relieving himself in the cave. He's using the restroom. And David goes in and his men are encouraging him to, to, to get at Saul because they say, hey, the Lord's delivered your enemy into your hands. But David instead does something that while it doesn't take Saul's life or hurt him physically, uh, still it was wrong. David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And it says after he did it, he was conscious stricken. It bothered him because he knew what he had done displease the Lord. And that's the bottom line. When I, as a Christian, do something that displeases the Lord, it affects my conscience. And the Holy Spirit convicts me if I'm the real deal. Now, what I do at that point is very important. Because if I don't do like David did then and confess it and then deal with it, then over time, that Defiled conscience becomes a seared conscience. And that's what Paul said happens to some guys, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. A seared conscience. What's a seared conscience? Well, it's synonymous with a calloused conscience. I could take a pen right now, and I've got calluses on my hands right here, and I could take a pen and I could stick it through this callus, and guess what? I wouldn't feel a thing. I could take that same pen, move it down one inch, and if I stuck it in, you'd hear me yelp. Why? Well, it's the same needle. It's the same point. 
but I don't get the point when I stick it through the callus because there's no feeling there. There's no sensitivity there because over time, it's developed a callus. You understand? A callous conscience becomes synonymous with what Jesus also referred to and other scriptures refer to as a hard heart. Now, if you get a Christian in this situation, you can confront them even lovingly in their sin, and they will not listen. They don't get the point. As a matter of fact, a Christian that comes to this place where they have, you know, allowed their conscience to become seared, callous, their hearts to become hard, they can even come to a place, and many of them do, where they justify their lifestyle. They justify their sin. They blame it on somebody else. Uh, I was talking to some of our pastors this past week and some of the marriage counseling we're having to deal with, including some that I'm uh, dealing with that I didn't go looking for. I hear, we hear, especially a lot of times these days, like I was talking to a husband recently and he was talking about uh, how all these years, how his wife has failed to fulfill him. And I I said, well, I I appreciate that and that may be true, but that's no grounds for divorce. That's no grounds for divorce. What does Ephesians say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But see, people that end up with a seared conscience, a calloused conscience, a hard heart, you can confront them with truth, even in love, and uh, they don't listen. They don't get the point. Vital, vital that we maintain a sensitive, clear conscience. That's what Paul's talking about. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Second thing is be self-controlled. Now, it's, again, the same Greek word. The idea is if I have a clear conscience, and, and here's the deal, it's being it's having a right mind. It's having a mind that's attuned to truth. That's what the clear conscience is. And if I'm in my right mind, in line with truth, I'm going to naturally develop and maintain self-control. And that's what the word means. I'm in my right mind, so I'm naturally going to say no to sinful passions and yes to godliness. Here's what Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 4, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. just means set apart for God's purposes. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Self-control. Now, the downside of this is uh, we are living in the last days. The end of all things is near. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 prophesies what these days, 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 3, prophesies what these days will be like. Verse 1, but mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, etc., etc. But here's the clincher. Get, Get this one having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What kind of power? The power to make you Christ-like. These characteristics. These are people that confess to know Christ. These are people that may even be genuinely saved. I don't know. I am not, that's between, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> but these are people that have a form of godliness. They may attend church. They may say, I'm a Christian, but there'll be no self-control. <laughs> If we do these things, then our prayer life continues to be effective. Listen, if I don't maintain a clear conscience and maintain self-control, what kind of prayer life do I have? What kind of a prayer life? 
I mean, even in 1 Peter, back in chapter 3, husbands, verse 7, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. That's just feminine. And as heirs with you, the gracious gift of life. Why? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. If I'm not being responsible before the Lord in my relationship with my wife, I have no prayer life. God says, well, you, you get that right first, and then, then we'll talk. Then I'll give you a listening ear. You're involved in pornography? There's no prayer life. There's no effective prayer life. Involved in sexual immorality? No effective prayer life. Cheating on your taxes? What kind of prayer life do you have? No. no. Uh, you're a Christian. You cheated on the exam at school? What kind of prayer life? You see how these things are connected? Clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. And then catch this fourth one. Above all, above all, love each other deeply. Only one other time that Greek word translated here, love deeply, is used, and it's in Acts 12, 5, when the church is praying for Peter, who's in prison. One translation says they were praying earnestly for him. Another translation says they were praying without ceasing for him. And that's the idea. Earnestly and without ceasing. Uh, because, listen, <laughs> listen, Hebrews, the writer says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Why? Because love can die. First Thessalonians, now about brotherly love. We don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught to love each other. Please listen to this. First John, all through First John, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. 1 John 4, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, understand what this kind of love is. This is not warm, fuzzy feelings. Not that you can't have warm, fuzzy feelings that are from God. There were no warm, fuzzy feelings when God became a man, when uh, Mary conceived uh, the Christ child. And he ended up growing up as a human being in this cursed world. There were no warm, fuzzy feelings when Jesus went to the cross. We're talking about self-denying love. We're talking about self-sacrificing love. We're talking about love that forgives as Christ has forgiven us. That's God's love. It's God's love. By the way, unfortunately, 2 Timothy that I read, 2 Timothy 3 says, in the last days, which we're in, as we get closer to the end, you're not, this is going to be rare going to be rare. Jesus said it. Because of the increase of wickedness as we get close to the end, the love of most will grow cold. Let me put a little footnote in here that some of you are not going to like. That's okay. You're having trouble in your marriage, you may even be headed for divorce. Maybe the papers are already signed. But you have no biblical ground for it. And as a matter of fact, even if you, even if you have, you, you're just using it. Because even if you got a biblical ground, God still love to see the thing turn around. If you forgive one another as he's forgiven you. And let me tell you something. You want to stay as far away from me as possible. If you're in a situation, you say, well, I just don't love her anymore. You don't, don't come to me for counsel. You're not going to get anything you want to hear. I know what it is not to love my wife. I know what it is not to love my wife. But I also know what it is to see the grace and power of God change me supernaturally. And I learned to love my wife by faith. You can read our testimony. It's called Learning to Love by Faith. And I'll tell you again, some of you heard it before. 
I, my wife has light skin and freckles. She goes out in the sun. She look, becomes a lobster. I wasn't physically attracted to that kind of a woman when I was growing up. And, you know, So how in the world we ended up together, I don't know. But let me tell you what's happened. I get turned on by lobster. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's the absolute truth. That is the honest to God truth. Now, does that mean I don't have to maintain maintain and every day deny self and continue to love by faith? Absolutely. But, I, but thank God, by the grace of God, I got more than just love by faith now. I got feelings. But it's faith that opened the door for the feelings. Faith. Are you hearing me? You hearing the Lord? Don't come to my office. Don't even, you don't even want to call me. If you say, well, I'm just, I, I don't love her anymore. And she doesn't love me anymore. Love deeply. Deeply. And then notice how this next one's connected. I, I never saw how connected all these are. Offer hospitality to one another <laughs> without grumbling. I can't help but read this, and every time I think about a life group leader from years ago, he's gone now, and I don't have to mention the name, and he ended up divorced. Sad situation. And I'm not surprised he's divorced. It was a time when I was going around visiting the life groups. I was recommended by elders or whoever in leadership that I ought to go around and see what's going on in the life groups. But that never worked out because I show up in a life group, it changes everything. Changes everything. But I did it, and I went to visit this one particular life group, and uh, the guy met us at the door, and you had to take your shoes off. Not that that's wrong. That's okay. But I got flat feet, and I can't walk. I mean, I got to have something, but I did it anyway and, and tried to stay seated most of the time. And then at the end of the evening, you know, you have the fellowship and the coffee and stuff, and, and you felt like you were walking through this home on eggshells. You felt like the guy really didn't want you, the host really didn't want you to be there. So I never went back. He cared more about his carpet than he did the kingdom of God. He cared more about his furniture than he did the souls that were sitting on the furniture. Offer hospitality to one another. And it's interesting, he said, without grumbling. I'll bet every time the, the group left that guy's home, he was just grumbling. Kind of like the story of the couple that invited some people over for dinner. And the, the, the daughter was asked by the mother, would you like to say grace? Would you like to say prayer for the for the meal and the young daughter said I wouldn't know what to say and the mom said well just say what you hear your mother say and so everybody bowed their head and the young girls began to pray and said oh dear lord why did I invite all these people for dinner <laughs> oh you're showing hospitality but not without grumbling please in the last few minutes hear this I had a dream for Calvary Chapel, St. Petersburg, early on in my ministry here. And it's still a dream of mine. I just don't know if it'll ever be realized. And I'm speaking to myself. I'm not preaching it. You know, I'm speaking to myself too. And the dream is that we'd actually experience what they experienced in the book of Acts. I wanted to experience the miracles as well, the Acts chapter 2. But Acts chapter 2 also says, they met daily in the temple courts and the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayer. And I have a dream, I still have a dream that everybody, everybody that calls Calvary Chapel St. Pete, their home church would experience what they experienced. Now listen to me for a minute. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles, the church met daily in the temple courts. That was the large gathering. And the primary thing that happened, the primary thing, they probably had some worship too, but the primary thing that happened in that large gathering was the teaching of the Word of God. That's clear. But the fellowship, here's what it says. 
They broke bread in their homes. That's where relationships developed and deepened. Because in a large gathering, oh, you can say hi and you learn one another's names and you get to know each other a little bit here, you know, and hey, did, you, did the Rays win last night and that kind of stuff or whatever. But this, listen, we can't love one another deeply here. It can't happen. It's not possible. Has to be. Has to be in a more intimate setting. And it has to happen over time. I've been challenged with this. Our elders have been challenged with this. Some of the elders have suggested how the elders themselves can become more relational with one another. And there have been some suggestions. Uh, I tried to get on it. My, my wife and I last year, once a month, we would have two or three elders and their families over at our house for a meal. And that was good. But here's what I've realized. Please listen. Don't listen to this. In a church this large and with 50 or so elders, there's no way all of our 50 elders can be real deeply personal with one another. It's impossible. I can only be personal. I can only be personal with a handful of people, really deeply personal, and really with only one or two deeply personal. I've realized that one of our pastors, he and I, have become really close friends, and it just happened. Now, we do have some of the common interests. We spearfish together. But I've realized he is a real friend. I'm talking a real friend. I can share the most intimate things about my life with him. And he can with me. Listen to this. The Son of God, God the Son, when he came as a man, he chose from his disciples 12. And here's what it says, that they might be with him. And then he might send them out. And those 12 hung out together. But among those 12, listen carefully, three of those 12 had a more intimate relationship and close relationship with Jesus Christ than the other nine, Peter, James, and John. Of those three, one became known as the apostle who Jesus loved. Not that he didn't love all of them. Obviously he did. But some kind of special relationship between Jesus and John. If everybody here would hear what God's saying through these few short verses, it revolutionized this church. And I'm so happy about what God's doing through this local fellowship. I, I'm, I'm excited. But, but understand this. There's no way. There's no way. 40 life groups? 200 life groups aren't enough. If you had 200 life groups and an average of 10 to 12 people in each group, that's still, you're leaving out 1,000 plus people of people that call Calvary Chapel their home church. We ought to have 300 life groups. Now, I understand what I'm talking about. You're going to have to, we're going to have to intentionally and be committed at taking steps and getting involved in groups where relationships can be built. Some of us today, God's going to call you to open up your home. Look at the nice home some of you have been given. And you, you've just been enjoying that, just you and your family? Maybe God gave you that nice home just beyond for you and your family, maybe for the cause of Christ. Maybe to open up your home, offer hospitality to one another. It's a relational thing, a relational thing. I got to, but there's one more thing we're told, and that is each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Now, it's interesting here, the gifts are just mentioned in two broad categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Let me say very quickly, my greatest service to this body as a whole is my big mouth. My greatest service to this body as a whole is not for us all to go fishing together. 
By the way, if we all went fishing together, we ought to buy a big fishing boat. That'd be fine with me. But let's say a hundred of us go on the Calvary Chapel fishing boat. And how many of those hundred are going to come back and say, boy, I really got close to the pastor today? It's impossible. It's not possible. You and I can only be really personal with a few people. Sometimes, listen, just serving. See how the progression happens here, the loving one another deeply, the relational aspect, and then serving. And here, you could go to scriptures that itemizes and gives a specific listing of all the various gifts throughout the body of Christ. But he doesn't do that here. He just lumps them into two broad categories, those who speak and those who serve. And both are serving gifts. Why does he not itemize it here? I'll tell you what I think. Because the emphasis here is not on finding out what your gift is. The emphasis is on finding a place to serve. And I don't think you'll really find out what your gift is. It's my personal conviction. And I got scripture that will back it up. The book of Acts. I believe the greatest way to find the gift or gifts that God's given you as a Christian is to find a place to serve and be faithful in it. Acts chapter 6, the widows uh, were being neglected. They need some people to wait on tables. They chose seven men. And those seven men served. And they began to find out the calling beyond waiting on tables. One, Stephen became a great preacher. He only gave one sermon, but it was a blistering one. And then Philip. What happened to Philip? Philip became known as Philip the Evangelist. But it started waiting on tables. My ministry started as a janitor at Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. That's where my ministry started. And I would not be here in this pulpit today if I had not been faithful there. I know that. And I'm not going to tell you the details of that. Don't have time. Find a place to serve. Where are you serving? You see, listen, most American Christians will never experience what's being talked about here. Most American Christians. Most American Christians attend a church and then go about their lives, and then come back and attend another service, and then go about their lives. And even some that may go to a smaller group Bible study never get intimate and relational enough that we can love one another deeply. And if all of us would be willing, be willing to take those steps to become relational, and there's all kind of ways you can do it, not just life groups, four or less group. You guys, get, a, get in a four or less group. Start a four or less group. It's just simply meeting on some kind of regular basis with three other guys. You don't have to memorize scripture. You don't have to do a Bible study. You just got to get together and get to know each other. Salt and light groups, redemption study, all kind of groups. Finding a place to serve also help that relational aspect in the church. You know the story of the prodigal? The prodigal son who asked for the early inheritance, and he goes off and he squanders inheritance in wild living. Ultimately, he ended up with the pigs. And he longed to eat what the pigs were eating, but nobody would give him even that. And here's what it says. There with the pigs, he came to his senses. I'd call that getting in his right mind. I'd call that getting finally a clear conscience, starting to think right. And here's what he said when he came to his senses. He thought about his father, and he said, my father's hired servants are better off than me. I'll go back to my father, and I'll say, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Here's the point. Once he came to his senses and got in his right mind, he had the heart of a servant. He had the heart of a servant. He's just looking to serve. And that's where all of us will be if we really get right. Clear conscience, self-control prayer, love one another deeply, offer hospitality to one another. That's relational. That is relational. 
and then find a place to serve. He's talking about serving the church in the church. Today on The Living Word, Pastor Danny Hodges has been teaching through a series in the book of 1 Peter. It's easy for people to say that God is good when things are going well, but what about when things are really hard and your faith is being tested like never before? Are you still able to say God is good? Well, in the book of 1 Peter, you get to hear the right perspective about suffering, even when it's unfair. God sees you and he knows what you're going through. Peter himself was a prime example of suffering much for Christ, but he knew that it was worthwhile because he watched Jesus' example firsthand. Are you in a state of suffering for Christ today? Look up and be reminded that God isn't surprised by it, but he's also not reveling in your suffering either. He's there to comfort you through your trials. We encourage you to keep tuning into this series, learning and growing from the truths revealed from the word. Before we go, we wanted to mention that if you live in or near the St. Petersburg area, all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship would love to have you come join us for our weekend services. We have a Saturday service at 6 p.m. and two on Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. Just go to our website at ccfstpete.church to get directions and more information. Thanks again for joining us today. We trust that you'll be eager to learn more from the book of 1 Peter here on The Living Word.